From the PA Foundation, I'm Andrea Lowe. This is Vital Minds, a podcast connecting the most vital issues in clinical care with the top minds facing them every day. According to the CDC, health inequities are reflected in differences in lengths of life, quality of life, rates of disease, disability and death, severity of disease, and access to treatment. Recent data from GoodRx, a company providing a range of services that help people get the health care they need at a price they can afford, provides an in-depth look at more than 50 million U.S. prescription claims and highlights the intersections of inequities between wealthy and underprivileged communities. The survey analysis shows that one-third of Americans have trouble paying for their medications. As PAs, we have a duty to provide the best possible care for each individual patient, which includes accounting for the direct social circumstances. To better fulfill that duty, it's key to build a greater understanding of health inequity and awareness of barriers that limit individuals from achieving their best health. Here to help us dive deeper into health equity in America and the role it plays in our healthcare system is Deanna Bridge Nahara, an emergency medicine PA and clinician consultant in Carroll County, Maryland. Joining Deanna is Tori Marsh, MPH, lead researcher on health inequities for the GoodRx research team, an expert on drug pricing and savings. Deanna and Tori, thank you for joining me today. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us, Andrea. First, let me congratulate you, Deanna. You were named to the Baltimore Sun's 25 Women to Watch in this last fall, recognized for your efforts to maximize the utilization of PA in the COVID-19 response, with an emphasis on limiting exposure and spread of the virus at group living facilities. Thank you. It's such a great honor to be on a list like this with other incredible women leaders. Uh, any award is always a reflection of an incredible team. And I'm lucky enough to have been part of a fantastic group at the County Health Department who are very pro-PA and allowed me to work in a lot of new ways. This is also a recognition of all the ways PAs in Maryland and really honestly across the country have been able to flex their medical muscles and help out in an unprecedented fashion. Unfortunately, we have found ourselves continuing to struggle with problems of equal access to care, which has been highlighted by the way COVID is disproportionately affecting communities of color. Yes, COVID-19 has certainly heightened awareness of health inequity on many levels. Health equity is the concept that calls on us as healthcare providers to bridge the gaps that lead to disproportionate incidences of all issues, from COVID-19 to chronic disease and other health concerns among underserved communities. Tori, you have had some interesting information to share based on your research. Tell us a bit more about what you do and how you see these gaps manifested in your work. Yeah, you're right, Andrea. You know, the pandemic has really revealed these racial disparities in our healthcare system and, you know, society as a whole. Uh, COVID-19 has really affected communities of color to a greater degree, and we're really seeing a disproportionate number ending up hospitalized or even losing their lives. We've heard the statistic, but according to the CDC, the death rate from COVID-19 for Black and Hispanic individuals is 2.0 times higher than that for uh, white non-Hispanic individuals. You know, in our research here at GoodRx specifically, we're seeing the impacts of this in a lot of different ways. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind really because it's on a lot of people's minds right now is inequities in uh, COVID-19 vaccine distribution. So the GoodRx research team, um, we recently did an analysis looking into areas that are at risk for slow uh, access and slow vaccine distribution. We did this by identifying pharmacy deserts, uh, which are areas with limited access to a pharmacy. So these pharmacy deserts could in turn create vaccine deserts where the rate of vaccination is slower 
simply because there just aren't enough vaccination appointments available as a lot of people are sharing uh, the same pharmacy. What we also found in our research is that communities of color tend to have fewer pharmacies per capita, which is going to put them at a disadvantage in the coronavirus vaccination effort. Um, and, you know, in, if these disparities aren't addressed in the vaccination effort, including setting up alternative vaccination sites, communities of color will fall even further behind in a pandemic that has already highlighted these deep uh, structural racism within the healthcare, healthcare system. Another piece of research that really comes to mind um, is the impacts of income inequalities that have existed throughout the uh, pandemic and really shown through in prescription fill patterns at the beginning of the pandemic. So in March, right as the pandemic hit, people were uh, stockpiling on toilet paper and prescription drugs. So, you know, we fact, in fact, we saw as much as a 300% increase in fills for some drugs and conditions. But what's super interesting is that higher income groups stocked up more than lower income groups. This trend exists across uh, some possible COVID treatments. Hydroxychloroquine, that was super popular at the beginning, it existed for that drug. It also existed for inhalers, depression, anxiety medications, insulins, and more. Um, and you know, this research really adds to the body of literature identifying how income levels can really affect how people access emergency resources, particularly during COVID-19. Thank you, Tori. That's some great information and significant highlights um, that I'm glad the audience got to hear. And Yana, as a PA working in emergency medicine, I know you see and treat patients of all backgrounds. Can you share a little more detail about what you do as a PA and how you see gaps in health equity in your work? When the Affordable Care Act was first passed, there was this expectation that the use of emergency departments would drop, particularly for non-emergent conditions. But it didn't, and in many cases, ED visits actually increased. In part, this was because individuals finally had health insurance but did not have access to the actual providers to care for their needs, so they would come to the ED to have things evaluated that they had been putting off for months or even longer. And with COVID, tons of people have lost their jobs and with it their insurance or found themselves having to go to work sick because they did not have paid time off and so further spread the virus. Thanks so much for sharing that as well. Well, we can't talk about equity without discussing income. How do factors like socioeconomic circumstances and insurance coverage impact patient care? It's a very complex issue. Even when patients have insurance, they're often still limited in their ability to see a primary care provider. Sometimes this is because PCPs are forced to limit what percent of their patients they can see with state or federal insurance because the reimbursement rates are so low. Also, individuals who live paycheck to paycheck often can't afford to take a day off work to see their PCP for preventative care. So they end up after normal business hours at an urgent care or in the emergency department for what we would consider a non-emergent complaint. Also, this takes into effect when you have high deductibles, and so they put things off until it's a catastrophic event. It's been said that the ED is somewhat like a social worker of the medical world. We do a lot of problem solving and trying to help people connect with the treatment they need, very similar to PCPs. And of course, COVID has turned a lot of what we do upside down. So it'll be really interesting to see where we are over the next few years. Yeah, Diana, I can't agree more, especially um, as a fellow ER PA, um, we are seeing the same as well. Tori, you mentioned the survey series conducted by GoodRx on the cost of prescription medication. Can you tell us a bit more about how the survey is being conducted and what your team learned, has learned over the last few months? Yeah, so, you know, GoodRx has been consistently tracking prescription affordability, and we continue to be interested in how patients are affording their medications, if they're having trouble affording them, and what they do if they can't afford their medications. Are they skipping their medication? Are they splitting their med in half? 
Um, and what we found is that most Americans are having trouble affording their medications, even those with insurance. So we did this survey by uh, through a survey on Google over a thousand Americans of all ages and genders. Um, we outlined uh, participants who had taken one or more prescriptions over the last uh, year for an ongoing condition, like a chronic condition like diabetes, for example. Well, what inspired the survey and what are some of the major takeaways from the analysis? Yeah, so, you know, according to our survey, one third of Americans say that they have skipped filling a prescription one or more times simply because of cost. Skipping prescriptions can lead to complications for untreated conditions, can cause increased healthcare costs overall, such as hospitalizations, surgeries, or emergency medical care. Uh, 42% said that they have found paying for medications to be somewhat or very difficult, even though 94% of respondents indicated that they have health insurance to pay for the cost of their prescriptions. On top of that, 19% also said that they had tapped into savings to pay for prescription medications, and 12% said that they just had no savings to begin with. This is quite consistent with recent data that 40% of Americans can't afford a 400 emergency expense. Those are significant numbers, and as Deanna alluded to, this really does cascade and cross the healthcare continuum. I want to dig a little deeper into the survey data. The survey revealed more than 40% of Americans struggle to pay for the cost of their medication, even those who are covered by some sort of insurance. Deanna, as a provider, does this statistic surprise you? Unfortunately, not in the slightest. Um, this is often a reason both for those initial visits as well as bounce back after hospitalization, both cost and confusion over treatment regimens. You know, we'll see individuals that come into the emergency department in, you know, DKA because they couldn't afford their insulin or had to ration their insulin. There's been case reports of infants with, um, with electrolyte abnormalities because of rationing formula feedings. Um, so, you know, this can impact society in a lot of different ways. Yeah, and unfortunately, this doesn't surprise me at all either, like Deanna. What we're also seeing uh, in our research is that insurance is starting to cover less and less, especially over the last five to seven years. And on top of that, more restrictions are also being placed on patients. Uh, so, you know, for most Americans, the struggle with affordable medications isn't really over the ones that cost thousands of dollars. It's about affording these routine drugs for chronic conditions and finding that their insurance just doesn't cover what it used to. So we did some research specifically a couple, a year or so ago on uh, Medicare Part D data. And what we found was three pretty worrisome trends in insurance coverage. The first one was that insurance plans are just covering fewer drugs. The second is that insurance on these covered drugs is getting more restrictive, which means that there's more uh, prior authorizations, more step therapy placed on these drugs that are covered. Uh, what we're also finding is that the patient's share of costs through copays, coinsurance, and deductibles is rising. And what all this means is that patients are just paying more out of pocket, even if they have insurance. We can't have a conversation about health inequity in 2021 without talking more about the COVID-19 pandemic. Deanna, from a health equity perspective, how have you seen challenges related to COVID-19 emerge in the patient care setting? You know, when the virus first hit, it really tore through the nursing homes. This was in part due to the frailty of the residents, but we also found it was because many of the staff had multiple jobs covering several facilities and it inadvertently would spread the disease between places before they had any symptoms. These same people often had never enough hours at one job to qualify for health insurance. And even if they did, were often uncertain on whether to trust the government-run testing sites or to utilize paid time off if it was even accessible to them. 
Owing to cost of living situations, many have multiple generations living in the same home or shared housing with other families, and this too resulted in further spread. And now we're seeing the inequities in vaccine access due to um, accessibility to technology to get on the internet and find these vaccine sites, or again, the ability to take off time of work to go to a vaccine administration site. And Tori, have you seen spikes or new trends in the data linked to COVID-19? Yeah, we've seen a lot, and it's been really interesting to work in this and you know see the trickle-down effects of COVID-19. Um, what we saw is that in mid-March, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people stocked up on their medications, specifically for asthma, type 2 diabetes. But since then, fills have dropped rapidly, and they haven't bounced back to pre-pandemic levels. Even as uh, things have started to open up a little bit more, people are able to go see their doctors a little bit more safely, and even as vaccination rates have increased. Another trend we saw was EpiPen fills. Um, this August, fills were 36% below where they were in past years. Likely, this is due to kids not going to in-person school, and so the parents didn't need to buy a new prescription, an EpiPen prescription for the school, but an interesting trend nonetheless. Uh, we have seen a lot of trends within depression and anxiety, and this has been researched a fair amount throughout the pandemic. Since 2016, fills for anxiety and depression medications have been increasing. Uh, and they reached a peak in April 2020, just after the pandemic began. The fill rate in 2020 thus far has been about 9.5% higher on average than 2016. And on top of that, our research has shown that more people are using telehealth for anxiety and depression treatment. The last kind of interesting tidbit we've seen is this disruption to healthcare throughout the pandemic. So since the pandemic began, about 70% of Americans surveyed a couple of months ago uh, noted that they had experienced at least one disruption to their planned healthcare visit. So what this means is uh, a lot of them have, have had to reschedule an appointment, cancel an appointment, or even switch an in-person visit to a telemedicine visit. Thank you. That's a lot of robust information. How do you think we as healthcare professionals can shift the conversation and help patients obtain consistent care and access to the medications they need to treat their conditions, especially chronic disease. Yeah, you know, one thing that I think is really important in, um, you know, helping patients obtain care and medications is uh, PAs having these conversations with patients around affordability. You know, it's, it's quite impossible to know what plan a patient may have or where they are in their deductible phase or how high their copay is for a certain drug. And oftentimes these cost conversations can be a little bit taboo and difficult to have. But I think it's important. It's important to open that gap and open that bridge to patients and, and you know, ask them if they're comfortable paying for their medication. Ask them uh, if they're not adherent to their medication. Is there a reason why? Uh, are there different alternatives that might be more affordable or that are covered more than the drug that they were prescribed? I totally agree with what Toria said. You know, a lot of the EMRs have the ability to alert when medications are covered or what tier they may be for a patient, but it isn't always accurate. Being mindful of cost is important in general, but sometimes the best thing is just opening the door for the conversation. I'll usually say something to a patient like, I never want you to have to decide between paying the bills and taking a medication, so please let me know if the copay or cost is too much. We can work together to find a treatment plan that treats the issues without breaking the bank. I also have a list of community resources that I commonly refer to. Our county health department has put this together, but I've also actually found that libraries often are a great resource that are underutilized for community connection. So you touched on some of the resources that you recommend, and I want to just point out that's a great antidote for opening the conversation. It's such a point to transition that into practice. But what resources do you recommend for patients who may be struggling to pay for medications 
or who are facing challenges preventing them from following a care plan. So one of the things that I always have access to is the $4 or $9 list of medications. These are usually major pharmacy chains and some of the grocery chains that have pharmacies inside. And that's a good first step. Um, It's also useful for individuals who don't want to use their insurance for some reason, such as concerns about privacy. GoodRx is definitely a referral source that's fairly easy for patients to manage. I also refer patients to needymed.com. That's N-E-E-D-Y-M-E-D-S. And it links people to patient assistance programs that requires a little bit more legwork on their part. Sometimes it requires proof of income or other uh, documentation, but can get them in a plan that's consistent for usually a year of medication. For general care, I'll also refer patients to the um, community care clinics. And the best search engine for that is findahealthcenter.hrsa.gov. And that's because you can search by zip code and find um, community clinics. And the nice thing is they've updated it for uh, COVID testing as well. And that includes mobile vans and, and other sources of care. And then I always refer back to the county health departments and also case management services for the hospital. Even uh, if your patient has not recently been hospitalized, sometimes talking to the case management department, they often have a go-to list that's really helpful resource. Thank you. I know from my own practice that there is sometimes a lack of trust in the healthcare system. A nationwide study conducted by the U.S. National Library of Medicine finds that distrust of healthcare system is high among the general U.S. population, with up to 80% of respondents reporting distrust for each item on the healthcare system's distrust scale. In addition, fewer Black and Hispanic adults report putting their trust in physicians, local hospitals, and the healthcare system than Caucasian adults according to an October survey by the Kaiser Family Foundation and the Undefeated. Does this surprise you? And how do you gauge if a patient is skeptical of guidance you are giving them? Unfortunately, this is not surprising. Um, I read the book, A Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington, and it's really eye-opening and helped me to better understand the hesitation that some people have about accessing healthcare services. I always make sure to try and do things like summarize the HPI after a patient has said it to me to make sure I'm I'm hearing what they're saying, but maybe also what they're not saying. And reviewing treatment plans verbally and in writing is is a step in the right direction. I often tell patients, you know, you can meet three different providers and get six six different opinions. So talking about the options that are available to them and trying to engage them in the treatment plan as it's happening. I'll also just say, you know, the internet's a wonderful and a terrible thing. What have you Googled? You know, what have you read? What have you heard? And sort of incorporating their concerns or fears into that treatment plan can really be beneficial. Great. And and I think that's fantastic advice as always, especially as we're in this environment and encouraging um, the right information um, on COVID-19 vaccination. So before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you both how you think PAs can be allies for patients who face barriers and inequities based on their ethnic and socioeconomic circumstances. For me, a lot of what Deanna has just said really resonated in the sense that PAs can meet patients where they are, you know, whether they are experiencing homelessness, whether they are unable to afford their medication, whether they are uncomfortable using their insurance or even calling their insurance to, uh, you know, fight to get a, a medication or a procedure covered. PAs are perfectly suited to have those conversations and kind of be the patient's ally. With regards to medication affordability, like I said above, um, and it's something I'm really focused on and really passionate about is, you know, just initiating that open dialogue, you know, letting patients know the different options that they have for affording their medication, talking to them about their comfortableness with the medication, how much they're paying, if they're comfortable with that level, and if not, what would they be comfortable paying? 
I think those are great points. And it really needs to start with some introspection and better understanding of your own privileges and biases, no matter your background. Not being afraid to question your opinions and examine how you've interacted with people different from you in the past, both good and bad, as a learning experience. And then using that to create better interactions going forward. We all stumble and kind of put our foot in our mouths, but it's what we do after that that's really the important thing. And I think broaching that with a patient is really important, especially when there's been a miscommunication of just sort of saying, you know, I'm sorry that we kind of got off on the wrong foot. How can we make this interaction better going forward? And then also just mentoring and sponsoring others for positions of leadership and engagement in the profession and the medical field at large, sort of propping open the door. Because when there's more diversity, then that also is reflected and our patient population respects that when there's diversity in the patient care team that's taking care of them. Great information and discussion. Thank you for joining us today for this especially timely conversation on health disparities and how PAs can help patients follow through on their health care treatment plans. This episode of Vital Minds was sponsored by GoodRx, a company that believes everyone deserves affordable and convenient health care, with a focus on helping people find the best care at the best price. Through technology, they provide Americans, regardless of income or insurance status, the knowledge, choice, and care to stay healthy. To listen to other episodes of Vital Minds and view related resources, visit pa-foundation.org.